Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab your Bibles if you can. Grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter five. We're flying through the book now. So Exodus chapter five, or you can pull out your phone or device and uh, read through on there as well. Exodus chapter five, we'll actually start at the end of chapter four if you wanna bookmark that. Uh, but as we continue our series through the book of Exodus this morning, we're gonna cover a chapter um, that quite honestly is one of the more depressing chapters in all of scripture. So I'm glad you came this morning uh, for that. But I wanna catch us up on the story of what's happening. Um, Moses, a uh, man, little boy named Moses, born to um, Hebrew mother and father in Egypt. The Hebrews, the Israelites, are in Egypt. They've been captives there for a number of years. Um, and so they're, they're stuck there. There's a Pharaoh who is ruling, and the Pharaoh is leveraging the number of Israelites to help him build his cities, his store cities to store weapons and artillery and to store um, gold and all, all sorts of things. He's leveraging the slavery of the Israelites to do that. But he recognizes early on or at some point that uh, the number of Israelites is growing rapidly and he's not sure the Egyptians can handle how many Israelites they are. There are, and not because they're good at warfare, but because there's a lot of them. And if they partner with someone who is good at warfare, it's it's. It's the end for the Egyptians. And so the Pharaoh sends down an edict and the decree is that the firstborn male child must be killed. And so he sends the decree down. Then he tells, he tells the, um, the midwives, if you see a boy coming out, kill him. Throw him in the Nile River. Throw the infant, throw the baby in the Nile River. Now Moses' parents are faithful to the Lord. Um, they're faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and there is a a birth of Moses. He has older siblings, Aaron and Miriam, and he is born and the edict is out that he must be thrown in the Nile and his mama, in great cunningness, decides, okay, I'll, I'll put my baby in a Nile, but I'm gonna put him in a basket. And the word there is ark, which takes us back to Noah's ark, all kinds of things running throughout this book. And uh, Moses' mama puts him in a reed basket and floats him down the Nile River and he ends up in, a, in bushes, essentially, reeds on the side of, of the riverbank. Pharaoh's daughter and her maidservants see the baby there, hear the baby crying, go to pick him up, talk to him. Miriam is there, Moses' older sister, maybe a few years old. And she says, oh, looks like a Hebrew baby. You want me to find someone to nurse that baby? And Pharaoh's daughter says, that would be great. So Miriam goes and gets Moses' mama to nurse the baby and to essentially raise him for the first few years of his life. He grows up in Pharaoh's court, uh, rises to power, at some day comes to his senses and realizes that it's his people, the Hebrews, who are being beaten and tortured and oppressed in slavery. And he runs out to help rescue and deliver them. We learn a little bit about Moses in the way that he reacts spontaneously to things. So he goes out, sees a confrontation, kills an Egyptian man, and then buries him in the sand like a cat does. And just buries him right in the sand. And then he approaches, uh, eventually approaches Hebrew men and they're fighting. He says, why are you fighting? This is not us. And they say, what are you gonna do? You're gonna kill us like you killed the Egyptian man? And then Moses' fight or flight kicks in and he flights and he runs. And he runs and he runs and he runs and he gets into the wilderness and he's there at a well and he meets the daughter of a sheep herder who's also a priest and he ends up going back to their house, marries this girl and he spends 40 years in the wilderness. He spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. God meets him 
on the edge of a mountain, on the backside of a mountain, tending his father-in-law's sheep, working for his father-in-law. And God meets him there and says, I'm sending you into Egypt to set my people free. And Moses has all the excuses in the world about why it shouldn't be him. And God uh, is patient with him and proves why and why and that he'll be with him. He doesn't have to worry about these things. All these, all these things happen there. So we're gonna pick up now. In the beginning of chapter four, uh, Moses is on his way back to Egypt to be obedient. And they're at a lodging place and, and God, the scripture tells us in Exodus four, God sought to kill Moses because there is a hidden sin, a secret sin that he hadn't dealt with yet. And God's not about to send this impure man, this bondaged man in to go set people free. So he's gonna set him free first from his own sin and he leverages his wife to do it, causes some issues in their marriage, um, but he moves forward. So last week uh, we talked about foreskins. You remember that? Of course you remember that. And so we're sitting at, at uh, lunch on Sunday and I asked Kaysen, because the kids were in here, our third grader, hey man, what did, what, did, what did you learn today in church? Not even thinking through what I just taught about. He's like, well, I remember, I remember something, about, something about skins and then um, throwing them at people's feet. I was like, yes, that's what it was. That's what it was. Yes, just skins. You did great. So that was last week. And so now we're gonna continue this story. Um, Aaron has come to meet Moses in the wilderness and the journey begins from there. But what I wanna do first to set the tone is I wanna read from John chapter nine first. So on the screen, we'll come up with some scriptures that we're gonna use throughout the morning. Take a picture of it if you want, write it down um, in your journal or on the, on the side of your Bible. These are things you can look back over this week. I want you to see that I'm not making this stuff up because I'm gonna make some claims today uh, that you need to know are true from the word of God. Not because I said them because it fits the narrative I want to say today but because it's true, because it actually is in here. So you can look at these throughout the week if, if you just need to, to test me on it. I wanna start in John chapter nine, because I think there are some things that we have to unlearn that we've been taught about God, particularly in the American church. And it's fed into all sorts of false gospels and false theology is being taught, but it's not found anywhere in scripture. So I wanna want set that tone first. Let's go to John chapter nine. It'll be up on the screen or you can go there if you'd like to. John chapter nine. As he passed by, this is Jesus. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples, so the 12 men closest to him, asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So in the culture at this point, in the life of Jesus, if there was a sin, particularly from birth, the belief was that there was some sort of sin in the marital relationship between the husband and the wife. That then that sin made its way into the womb of the mother, which then caused some kind of physical deformity. That anyone born with physical deformity was born that way because of sin. Either the baby sinned or the parents sinned. There was some sin there. That's what was taught and what was believed. It's a very... Um, causation type of theology. If this, then something else. And what's great about this kind of theology is it's really, good to, really easy to legislate this kind of theology, isn't it? If you're bad, God will kill you. This is, this is the kind of theology. But then Jesus answers in verse three. Well, Jesus answered. Well, it was not that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
Now we can read that and we can think, well, how archaic for them to believe that? How, could, how archaic for them to believe that this is how God would work, that some baby would suffer the sins of, of the parents or that the baby sinned in the womb? How archaic to believe that? The truth is we aren't too far off from that. Particularly in the American church, we are a results-oriented people. And so we build our lives, we build our businesses, and we build our faith around results. What gets me the quickest and best results, I will do that. And so many of us grew up in a church setting where we were taught the way to get results from God is to obey him. If you obey, you will get results. If you are a good kid, you will get results. The problem is that's not in scripture. The problem is the very thing that Jesus answers, the question he answers in John 9 is, well, no, 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 this isn't about that. This is about the works of God being displayed. But often we obey God with the sole intent of getting results from him. That our obedience is not about faithfulness to him, it's not about relationship with him, it's about what we get from him. We are using God to get what we want. And if you did that, to a woman, you would be in jail for it. But we leverage obedience to get what we ultimately want from God. And then if we don't get results, we're left with a couple of things. First of all, it's that, well, I must have done it wrong. If I didn't get the results that I wanted, I must have done something wrong. In Phoenix, over the past week, there's a Roman Catholic church who came out and said that over the life of this uh, pastor's ministry, he had been baptizing people wrong and therefore they had to get rebaptized. He was saying, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the diocese says, no, 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 it's I baptize you. And because you said I and not we, you were doing it wrong, and those baptisms are all invalid now, and they all have to come back and be rebaptized. If I don't get the results, I must have done it wrong. So maybe you've, maybe you've faced this, and you've, You've been spurred up towards something, maybe it's in a church service, maybe it was at youth camp and you're gonna go home and do whatever it is you're supposed to be doing. And you're gonna burn your old CDs and you're gonna tell everybody about Jesus and you're gonna stop watching that and start watching this and you're gonna love Kirk Cameron and you're gonna do all the right things. But there comes a moment when doing the right things doesn't get you the results. Anybody, can anybody relate to that? I'm doing the right things and I'm not getting the results that I wanted. So then what you're taught is, well, you must be doing it wrong. Maybe you said we instead of I. Maybe that's what happened. Because as long as you push the right buttons, you should get what God has for you. Maybe you put the pin number in wrong. Maybe you did it wrong. And in a results-oriented society, that's what we're left with if we don't get results. Secondly, if I don't get results, someone must have did wrong to me. Well, either I did it wrong or someone else did it wrong. It's kind of what we're left with. And so if someone else did it wrong, there's somebody to blame. And gosh, we love somebody to blame, don't we? I mean, we'll blame a president, we'll, we'll blame a governor, we'll blame our kids, we'll blame a teacher, uh, we'll, we'll blame Elon Musk, it doesn't matter, we'll blame whoever. Because we love somebody to blame because it takes the onus off of us, but it's all results oriented. I didn't get the result I wanted, so either I didn't do it right or somebody else didn't do it right. And most of the time it's because somebody else didn't do it right. We're left in this and we like to have somebody to blame some reasons for it. And then we get down to this question, if I don't get the results, then why even invest my time? If I don't get what I want from God, why even spend my time doing it? 
And so the truth is, many of us are here today, not because we love God, but because we owe something to our grandma, or we owe something to our wife. And what we've wrestled with is, listen, I've done all these things before. I didn't get what you're telling me I should get for it. I've tried it. I've tried the church attendance. I've tried giving my 10%. I never got it pressed down, shaken together. That never happened to me. I've tried serving. I've tried loving my wife better. I've, I've, I've tried the love dare. I've tried it all. And I haven't gotten the results that I want. So why invest my time? If it yields results quickly, we're gonna do it. But if it doesn't yield results quickly, we won't. And the truth is, overall, corporately, churches have fallen victim to the same kind of business KPO mentality. Everything is about results. And so churches now, you can go to conferences and you can get books and you can, you can get a coach, you can coach you of how to get the right metrics in the church to know that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. So if, you're, if this number of people are getting saved every year and that increases by this percentage over the next year, then you must be doing something right. If you get this many people baptized, this many people in small groups or Sunday school, this many people in church attendance, and we are a results-oriented society that's making its way into the church. If you get the numbers or the dollars, or if you stream and have enough viewers on streaming, then you're doing it right. The problem is the Bible doesn't teach it. In fact, there's a prophet by the name of Jeremiah whose nickname was the weeping prophet, who God called to pronounce judgment in the midst of awful times. And he never once saw somebody repent, not even one time. And he's got a whole book in the Bible named after him. And throughout this book, he's faithful in proclaiming and proclaiming. And at one point, he, he cries out to God, you have seduced me, you've tricked me. You told me you've given me a gift of speaking and yet nothing has happened. I am a laughing stock whenever I bring up your name. John the Baptist. He's told he's the forerunner of the Messiah and yet he finds himself in prison and beheaded because of it. Throughout the Bible, it's littered with people who were faithful and obedient who did not see the results that you would think they would see. Look at the life of Jesus. At one point, Jesus is preaching the gospel, declaring truth, and at the end of John 6, everyone leaves him but the 12 disciples. This is Jesus. And I feel pretty good because if people left Jesus, I feel like I'm doing okay. And they leave, and he looks at his disciples and saying, listen, are you gonna go too? As if to say, I mean, decide now what you're gonna do because I'm not gonna change what I'm proclaiming. And then he's murdered. So tell me again how results are the indicator of our obedience. Tell me again how numbers are supposed to substantiate whatever it is that we're doing. The truth is, in the Bible, success is no indication of God's favor, and failure is no indication of God's punishment. I you to read that again and let it sink in for a second. Success is not an indicator of God's favor. And you wanna know how I know that? Because of influencers on social media. They're successful. You think they're being obedient to God? How about music artists and athletes? How about that guy you went to high school with who's a multimillionaire now and has had seven different wives and right now sleeping with someone who isn't even his wife? Is it because of his obedience and God's favor that he's been successful? Well, on the flip side, I don't think failure is any indication of God's punishment. Sometimes things fail. 
and not because God's angry with you and not because you did it wrong. Sometimes God knows better what to do and how to handle us than we do. And so sometimes failure is not a curse, but a blessing. Success is no indication of God's favor. And what's happened is that's become the prosperity gospel. If you are successful, God must have favor on you. You know how you know God has favor on you? When you are a child of his, that's how you know God has favor on you. And whether that's on the mountain or the valley, God's favor rests on you. Failure is no indication of God's punishment. So you know, I was studying this passage this past week and there are some commentators and pastors that I deeply respect and admire who were digging around in this passage to try to figure out why did it go bad for Moses? Did he say something wrong? Did he get the words wrong? Did he say we instead of I? Was he not fully obedient? And gosh, I want to believe that because that's an easier thing to teach today. It's easier for me to stand up here and teach and say, hey, you know why I didn't go well? Because Moses messed up. You wanna know how to make sure things don't go bad for you? Just don't mess up. But that's not the message of Exodus chapter five. Eugene Peterson in his book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction says this. He says, no literature is more realistic and honest in facing the harsh facts of life than the Bible. At no time is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. For many, the first great surprise of the Christian life is in the form of the troubles we meet. The Bible is blatantly honest about what life actually looks like. The problem is we don't teach those parts. The problem is we teach and we sit in children's church or you'll sit in your youth group and you'll hear all the great things about what God is. You'll be whipped up into a frenzy and yet you'll never be told, oh, but when you get back home, it probably won't go the way you think it's going to go. And not because you've done it wrong and not because there's evil in the world, but just because this is what God is up to. In the same book, he continues and says, there is a great market of religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. Listen, it's my heart and the hope of my life that I spend the next uh, 20 to 30 or 40 years ministering here at this church with these people over a long period of time. And the hope for me is that we can journey on this long journey together in the hills and the valleys and the ups and the downs. What that means is I can't stand up here and tell you your life will be all butterflies and rainbows if God loves you. It won't be. Because sometimes we run into the valley. And sometimes the valley is where we meet Jesus. And whether you've been there or you're heading there, we will all have the waves of disappointment. We're all gonna face it. But religion is not an attractive visit, or visit to an attractive site when we have the leisure. Following Jesus demands all of us all the time. And this is what I think is what is happening here. You're gonna see the phrase in Exodus 5, heavier work. And I think that's where I wanna land for us this morning. This is the heavier work of following Jesus. It's when things feel heavy. And we've gotta decide how we're gonna handle the heaviness of life that comes our way. So let's go to Exodus chapter four, look at verse 27, and then we'll get into chapter five. I wanna set some context here. 
And I'm gonna read through all of chapter five because the story just flows. And so we're gonna read all of it. Then we're gonna get to some application points here at the end. Exodus 4, 27. So everything's happened with uh, Moses and his wife and the foreskin. Verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs he had commanded him to do. If you remember, God did these signs in front of Moses. He said, throw your staff down on the ground. It became a snake because he grabbed by the tail and he did, became a staff again. And God said, put your hand inside your cloak and then it turned leprous. It had a disease on it. God said, put it back in and it was healed again. And God said, take the river of the Nile, the water of the Nile River and put it on the land and it turned to blood. Remember, God gave him these signs to do in front of Pharaoh. This is what he's talking about. Then 29, so Moses and Aaron, Aaron who's still living in Egypt, went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. So this is a great marketing campaign. Look what I can do. Look what's gonna happen. Look what God told me. And the people believed, and when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and underlined, circle this, they worshiped. Moses and Aaron get all the people whipped up into a frenzy. Look at these things we can do. Watch, it's a snake, it's a staff, it's a snake, it's a staff. Watch my hand, watch this. Now you see it, now you don't. They do all the tricks. Everyone's like, oh, God has heard us and he has sent this weird magician shepherd man and his brother. And, and Batman and Robin are gonna go save us from slavery in Egypt. It's, it's happening, it's happening. And so scripture says they bowed their heads and they worshiped. It's been hundreds of years since they've had hope. And now they have hope. They've seen the signs of God. They've seen miraculous things. And, and this, is, this is Thursday night at youth camp. That's what this is. This is all the emotion. You're wiping snot out of your face. All the girls are crying and breaking up with their boyfriends. All that's happening right now. And they, they're, okay, this is, it's happening, we're ready. So this all happens. And then look, chapter five, verse one. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and they said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, you can underline that. The God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, I love this because you have to use your imagination a bit and just, just picture 80-year-old Moses and 83-year-old Aaron, and they've, people are behind them. Go, Aaron, go, Moses. They're, they're pumped for what's about to happen. I think I see like the entourage coming behind them, and they've got their chests out. I mean, they're ready. They've got whatever music they have playing in their beats, getting ready to go up and, and start this thing. And so they stand before Pharaoh, who literally views himself as a god, and the people view him as a god. And Moses, who argued with God in the wilderness, just saw his 30-something-year-old son get circumcised, all of this. He saw the people, and finally he has people who support him. Remember, 40 years earlier when he left Egypt, he had nobody. And now he's got the whole Israelite, the whole Hebrew nation behind him. And he stands there, and he says, listen here, Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of Israel, he says this to you, let my people go. And that's, right, that's the moment in the movie, isn't it? Like, that's it. That's, that's what you want to hear. And he goes, oh, baby, let my people go. Huh. And that's, this is all happening right here. I think the expectation was, all right, God, I'm going to say this one thing, and then it's all going to be better. 
all right, I'm, I'm gonna take my, my wife on one date and it's all gonna be, but we're gonna do one marriage conference and we're gonna be back to how we were when we were dating. It's gonna be amazing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my kid to youth group just one Wednesday and Cody and Micah are gonna fix them. That, that's what's gonna happen. No, it's not. <laughs> so they're standing and I, I honestly believe this was the faith they had in God. All right, I'm just gonna say the thing and you're gonna do it. Now, the problem is, God had told them before how this was gonna go, hadn't he? I mean, he had said that he's gonna resist, I'm gonna harden his heart, it's gonna be a whole thing. Most of them are like, no, 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 but the people are so excited, God, you don't understand, you don't understand. We're gonna do it in one thing. Verse two, and Pharaoh says, well, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And you can just see the sadness on Moses and Aaron's face, can't you? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. These two mountain-wandering hicks come up to the king of Egypt. They're like, hey, buddy, God said, you're gonna have to let these people go. And then he says, I don't, I don't know who you're talking about, and I'm also Pharaoh, so no. So they said, well, will the God of Hebrews, he met with us, please Please just let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. If we don't, he's gonna fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. I mean, that'll get him, right? That'll get the tender heart of Pharaoh. And the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. That was what made them congeal together quicker. As in the past, instead, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. What Pharaoh says is, well, these Hebrews have way too much time on their hands because they've conjured up some plan. So if they've got extra time, let's just stop giving them straw. They can go get it themselves. They've been idle for too long and they must have extra time. And now they're crying out, verse four, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. You can hear that in a mocking term. Verse nine, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to their lying words. So that didn't go well. Now it's worse for the people of Israel. And Moses, this feels familiar to him, doesn't it? Because Moses did the thing 40 years earlier where he killed the Egyptian taskmaster. And he's expecting, you're amazing, you've come to save us. And they say, what are you gonna do, kill us? And so Moses, all this comes back to him. Verse 10, the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. What did Moses and Aaron say to Pharaoh in verse one? Thus says the Lord. Now we don't have time to get into it here, you're gonna see it later with the plagues. This is epic what's happening. Pharaoh heard them say, thus says the Lord. And Pharaoh says, oh yeah? Well, thus says Pharaoh. I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced even in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters were urgent saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten 
and were asked, why have you not done all your work of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? That seems like a dumb question. What's going, why, why haven't you guys done it? I thought you had the time. You were talking and dreaming of magical plans of how you're gonna dig yourself out of Alcatraz. What's happened now? You can't, what's going on? And so now what you're gonna see is you're gonna see the people, these leaders, these taskmasters, these people, they're gonna appeal to the oppressor. It's always our first, this is our first instinct when we don't get the results that we want is to appeal to whatever is oppressing us. Well, I didn't get what I wanted, so maybe I did it wrong. And they appeal. The foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? Notice what they're saying. Before, when they got all whipped up into a frenzy, they were the Hebrew people that God had seen and heard their cries. And now in verse 15, they're back to being the slaves of Pharaoh. Do you see it? When the heavier work comes, we lose our identity. And while we are whipped up into a frenzy and we're we're told great things about the power and deliverance of God, and then reality hits, we've got a decision to make. Do I believe my identity as a son or a daughter of God, the most high king, the creator and sustainer and sovereign king of all things? Do Do I believe that's who I worship or am I still just a servant to Egypt? And it's clear they're falling back into old habits and this happens over and over and over again. No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. And he said, Pharaoh said, you are idle, you're idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. I guess appealing to Pharaoh's heart didn't work again. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. So now you see their fear. The end of chapter four, it's God's amazing. Look what he's come to do. Now in the middle of chapter five, we're so afraid of Pharaoh, we're not sure God can overtake Pharaoh. They knew they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Then this is awesome in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting on them as they came out from Pharaoh. I don't know if they're at the door. Like, oh, please, did it go well? Did it go good? Did it happen? Is he gonna let you go? Because we said that thing at the beginning and I'm pretty sure he heard us. And they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, this is the people speaking to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and they have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Well, now the people turn on the deliverer. They appeal to the oppressor. That didn't work. And so now they've got to turn on the one who was sent to deliver them. Now they need somebody to blame. I mean, Pharaoh made a good point. Moses, I can't believe you've done this to us. You were supposed to deliver us and now it's gotten worse. You were supposed to come and set us free and now we can't even make uh, our quota and so we're getting beaten. It was fine how it was. I wish you would have just stayed in the wilderness. The Lord look on you and judge. Well, then Moses, and not his finest moment in verse 22, turns to the Lord. When the people turn on the leader and the leader is not walking in health, he then turns on God. Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, 
that one time, Moses? He has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, I love the honesty of Moses. Moses is saying, hey God, you're not doing this fast enough. And now it's costing me something. Now I've lost my friends. Now I've lost all my followers because you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And you're gonna see later, God's like, no, 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 I'm actually doing exactly what I said I was going to do. That's not the problem. But Moses, from the end of chapter four, look what God gave me to do, to the end of chapter five, has experienced what you and I have probably experienced a number of times in our lifetime. When we have hopes and expectations of God and then he doesn't come through. You prayed for someone to be healed. You prayed for a marriage to be restored. You uh, prayed for a, a child to figure things out before they got sent to jail. No, you've, you've, have you prayed those things? I've prayed those things. Have you prayed them? Only to find God answer the way you didn't want him to. And he said, no, not yet. And then you're left here. And then you're left like the people, with, I've got to blame somebody, so I appeal to someone, so I appeal to doctors, and I appeal to lawyers, and I, well, how can I make this right? And they say, well, we really can't make this right, it is what it is. So then you appeal to a leader, and it's a pastor, or a teacher, or a husband, or a wife, he said, you told me, you said, if I did this, this would happen. And then when that's not enough, you turn to God, and say, you lied to me, you seduced me. You told me if I followed you and if I prayed and, and the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, what's happened? And then you're left with a decision of what you're gonna do. Do you continue following or what do you do? Well, that's coming next week. So the question for us now is, well, what do we do when disappointment hits? How do we handle disappointment? Well, the truth is that disappointment is an indicator that there's something amiss in our hearts. Disappointment is an indicator of idolatry. And I, I love you enough to say this to you. I believe that to be true. I believe that disappointment is an indicator that we're worshiping something other than God. I think first, we worship our wants. We've made our wants ultimate things and so we worship them. And the truth is, for many of us, our wants aren't evil things. Our wants are to be healthy, to be rid of the cancer, to have a healthy marriage, to have our kids behave, right? That's the things that we want are good things. The problem is when good things become ultimate things, they become idols. And so when we worship our wants, what happens is we only leverage God to get what we want. And when God doesn't give us what we want, he must be the problem. So we worship our wants. Secondly, we worship our works. This is for a lot of us who grew up in the church. We worship our work. So we become really good people and we do all the right things and we say all the right things and don't say all the wrong things. And we're faithfully at church and we're doing our devotions, we're doing our quiet time, we're in the word, we are accountable to someone. We're, we've done all the right things and then we wonder, God, why haven't you? Because I prayed 
and I prayed and I prayed and I fasted and I attended church and I served and I gave. I did everything you've asked me to do. Why haven't you come through? You know what that question is? That question is you saying, I've worshiped my work. Why haven't you done what you're supposed to do? I've elevated my effort. I believed if I do this, you just have to fall in line. We worship our work. Which is why a number of pastors that I listened to and, and things that I read said, well, if you go back and see Moses didn't say exactly what he's supposed to say, and I just, I can't get there with this. I can't get there. I think he did the best he could with what he had. And I think God actually said, the first thing he told them was, tell Pharaoh to, to set, your, set them free on a three days journey that they might have a feast to me. Moses said it. Now, did Moses remember the hardship? No, but I think Moses was obedient. I really do. So what happened? And can't you understand his disappointment? Like, don't you feel it? Well, we worship our works. I did everything you asked me to do. Why haven't you come through? I did what you wanted me to do. And the third thing we worship is what was. I wish you would have never even sent me here. It was better in the wilderness. Why even let me get married to her then? Why even let us adopt that child? Why, why, why even give me this job? Why move us to this school system? Why put me on, or my kid on this travel team? Why do that? I wish we could just go back to how things were. I don't know many of you in your marriage have said, man, I wish we'd just go back to how things were before we had kids. And you love your kids. Here's the thing, you can't go back. I know that's radical for you to hear. You can't. We worship what was and we try to get back to what was. If there's disappointment that arises in your heart because God didn't come through, here's the revelation for you and for me. We're worshiping something other than God. And sure, you're gonna sing songs and you're gonna raise hands and, and you're gonna do all the things. But at the end of the day, what tugs at your heart is not God, it's what you get from him. And he's just become a genie that if you say the right things and do the right things, he has to follow through on your three wishes. Well, then what do we do? When disappointment comes as followers of Jesus, and here's what you need to know throughout the Bible, disappointment comes, waves come, failure comes. Financial collapse comes. Your house value crashes. Gas prices rise. Your kids disobey. Your marriage starts to fall apart. These things happen. So then what do we do? Well, I think the author of Hebrews chapter 10 tells us what to do. First is that we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Because he who promised is faithful. That's what we do first with all that we have. And the prayer may be, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. I wanna hold fast, but I'm having a hard time believing it right now. That's the prayer. We hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Because he who promised is faithful. We remember, we aren't the faithful ones, he is. And so while you wanna logically figure out how you ended up in this failure, at the end of the day, the truth is because God let you end up there. And he is faithful. Later in the Old Testament, there's a king named Nebuchadnezzar and he has brought um, Israelite boys over to try to indoctrinate them into the worship of Baal. 
So he brings them over and there's this huge statue and he declares, you're gonna have to worship me. You have to worship this idol. And then he says, hey, there's a furnace here. If you don't worship, like if you don't bow down before this idol, I'm gonna throw you in the furnace. So there's three young boys or maybe young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you're gonna have to worship me, worship the king. And they say in verse 16 of Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered instead of the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. He asked, well, who is this God you wanna worship instead? And they said, we don't have to answer you this. Verse 17, but if this be so, that the God whom we serve is able, so under, pay attention, he's able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So notice what they say. He is able and he will. They're holding fast to their confession of hope without wavering. He can and he will. God can deliver you out of your failure and he will. God can redeem and restore your marriage and he will. God can uh, work with you in parenting your children and he will. But then this next verse, verse 18, but if not, even if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Does that feel weird to you? We know he can, gosh, and we know he will, but if he doesn't, yeah, this is holding fast the confession of your hope without wavering. I know you can, God. I know you can heal. I know you can take away my addiction. I know you can heal my cancer. I know you can. I know you can restore and redeem my marriage. I know you can. I know you're able and I know you will. But at the end of the day, even if you don't, because you're sovereign, even if you don't, I'm gonna keep worshiping you. I'm not gonna worship my wants. I'm not gonna uh, worship my works. I'm not gonna worship what was. I'm gonna worship you. Even if you don't, I trust you. So first we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, but then how do we do that? The author of Hebrews continues, well, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. We hold fast and we love each other well. Because the next verse is not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some. So what do we do in the valleys? What do we do when disappointment comes? We hold fast to the confession of our hope and we don't stop coming to church and we don't stop going to small group and we don't stop calling our Christian friends. We don't stop doing that. You wanna know why? Because you can't handle the disappointment on your own. You can't handle the wave on your own. You can't handle it. Christianity is not a solo sport in the Bible. This is a team sport and we need each other. We need each other. And the temptation in disappointment and in your bitterness and frustration with God is to give up on the assembly, is to give up on attending. And listen, I, from the beginning, you should have heard this from me. The metrics to me don't matter. I'm not saying this to get you to come sit in these maroon chairs and listen to me run my mouth. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you don't, you're an isolated prey to the enemy and particularly in seasons of disappointment because the waves are coming and the way to follow Jesus in the heavier work is we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And when our holding fast begins to loosen, we find people to hold on with us. That's what we do.
So maybe today you're in a season of disappointment. The temptation is to isolate yourself. Please don't. I love you. Please don't. I know everyone else has given up on you and everyone else thinks you're a failure and you must be a failure because you did something wrong and you know I don't know that I did and maybe I did. Well, maybe you did. Well, there's grace for you here. Hold fast to the confession of your hope. He who promises faithful and don't neglect gathering together, especially as you see the day of the Lord approaching. Do you bow your heads and close your eyes? While this chapter may feel depressing, I think it's full of hope for us. It's hopeful in these ways. The failure you're experiencing may not actually be an indicator of your holiness or your faithfulness. To quote, quote the great Garth Brooks, you might have to thank God for unanswered prayers. Maybe the worst thing that could happen to you was success. Now we can fast forward in this story and what happens is because of the delayed deliverance from Pharaoh, God's people are sent away with so much gold and jewelry and livestock. And then ultimately what God does with that gold and that jewelry is he has them build his temple. So what God's building up for you in your patience, in your waiting, in your valley, will ultimately turn to a place of worship for him when all that is left is highest praises. So maybe you're here today and you would say, yeah, I'm, I'm bitter today. I think God has seduced me. I think he's lied to me. Would you just raise your hand? Just be bold enough to say, yeah, today, I, I'm, I'm wondering I'm struggling today to believe that he is who he says that he is. I wonder how many of us would say that you've been there. Would you just raise your hand and say, yeah, I've had seasons where I've questioned the goodness of God. Yeah, yeah, me too. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. And maybe you've tried Jesus and you tried kind of the vending machine genie Jesus and you kept getting disappointed over and over and over again. Well, I need to tell you, he's better than whatever you thought he was. And he's not a genie, and he can't be manipulated to give you what you want. And your work isn't the, the strategy to get what you want from God. He's just good, and he only gives good gifts. And he meets us in our failure. He meets us in our sin to rescue and deliver us. So if that's you today and you just, you need to be rescued and delivered from your sin by a real God, a true one. Who's not a myth and not a genie, but a God who's faithful and true and present. You can meet him today by admitting your failure, admit your sinfulness, believe that he is the one who came to rescue you through the finished work of his son on the cross and confess that he is Lord. But I want to encourage many of us here today to not neglect the gathering together. Don't neglect the text or the phone call. Don't neglect the small group. Don't neglect it when the wave of disappointment comes. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for just the honest truth of your word that things don't always go our way. And even when we're obedient, things don't always go our way in the short term. But we know we serve a God who is faithful to the end. 
the Alpha and the Omega, the beginner and finisher of our faith. So we hold fast to our confession that our hope is in you, the faithful one. And while we may be in a season of dark disappointment today, God, and the wave has come, give us hope and give us people that we might ride the wave of disappointment and find joy. We trust you. We wanna believe in you. Help our unbelief, God, in Jesus' name, amen.